0: It is obviously the first Sunday in Advent, and what we're going to do this Advent season for our, for our series is think about some of the themes and some of the ways in which the life of Abraham that we have been studying connects to the work of Jesus. Uh, in some ways, what we were doing in the life of Abraham was thinking about his life and how it connects to the future. Now we're thinking about Jesus' life and how it draws us into the uh, fulfillment of that story. And as we're turning to John 8 this morning, uh, I just want to give a, a couple of thoughts here before we begin that are, are going to be helpful for orienting you. The first is you'll hear John right off the bat use the term, the Jews. Partly, this is important. We're going to study the gospel of John, by the way, <laughs> uh, this coming winter. So we're going to get back to John. But it's important to know that John was the very last of the Gospels written. Uh, It was written when the church already had a lot of Gentiles in, in it. And so John, when he's describing the crowd that's talking with Jesus, will often simply use that term to help set the location for who is talking. It's not meant to be especially pejorative or anything like that, but that's part of what's going on here. And it's also helpful to understand that we are dropping into the end of a conversation, there's a, a big theme in the, in the middle of the Gospel of John about Jesus' authority, why he has authority, who has given it to him, why people should listen to him. And at the end of one of those conversations, uh, we arrive here in chapter 8, uh, verse 48, and that's where we'll start reading. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will, not, he will never taste death. and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word, that we would understand more deeply what the riches of the gospel are, that we would see the glory of Jesus shine more brightly through it. And that even as we are thinking more and more about the incarnation uh, during Advent, Lord, we pray that you would Focus, our understanding, not onto what is the distraction the distractions that are all around us, but into your word and into the actual life and work of your son. Let me ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you all know what magic eye pictures are? they're those multicolor nonsense pictures that you're supposed to stare at and then eventually a 3D image will kind of emerge. Uh, I hate these things. Um, some people seem to be able to get them right away. I almost never can see anything. Uh, but it, it, I, I, but what it is is a matter of focus, right? That The more you're kind of focused on on the image a certain way you can't see anything. It's just a bunch of colors all kind of blurred together. Some people have told me, you just got to let your eyes get, get, you know, unfocused and you'll, it'll come out. Some people have told me you got to stare through it like a kind of thousand yard stare and then it will emerge. I don't know. It never works for me. The point is, it is a matter of focus. And it's funny how we use optic language. Jesus uses optic language even. To talk about how our minds work. We, we talk about focusing on something, which is a metaphor of the eyes, right? To focus your mind on something is to do that. We tell people to picture this or picture that. We mean think about it. We'll say, oh, I, I see clearly now what you meant. We don't see what they said, right? It's it's not. It's we never mean that. We don't mean that literally. It's we can say we can't see how this works out. We use all of these optical metaphors to talk about how we perceive and think about ourselves in the world, and then, uh, that's fascinating because on the one hand, Paul will talk about lit faith as something that is in contrast to sight. In 2 Corinthians 5, right? He talks about we live we walk by faith, not by sight. Meaning we don't see Jesus. And yet there is, and Jesus talks about it this way with Abraham, there is a kind of sight, there's a kind of seeing by faith. There is something in the mind's eye <laughs> that becomes our focus. That's what faith is. The great challenge of faith is seeing what God has done in and through Jesus. That's the great challenge of it. And this passage draws out uh, several facets of what it means to see by faith it means seeing the lies of Satan, it means seeing the hope of Abraham. And it means seeing the glory of Christ. So the eyes of faith see first the lies of Satan, the hope of Abraham, and the glory of Christ. The lies of Satan is pretty obvious here. You know it from the beginning of our reading, right, that we're already, we've already stepped into a pretty testy conversation. <laughs> um, I'll give you a little background on this. Again, there was this theme in the middle of John about Jesus' authority, and that leads to a lot of conflict, especially with the religious leaders and sometimes the crowd. And the conversation that's been going on for most of chapter 8 here uh, has begun with Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, and people misunderstanding that. And then Jesus says that he comes from the Father, doing what the Father wants. And then he challenges them and says, but you are acting like your father, the father of lies, Satan. Uh, Needless to say, that does not go over too well. And they say, oh, we know who our father is. We have Father Abraham. And then they go on a little bit about that, and they get to this point where we picked up in verse 48, where they're openly accusing Jesus. You're a Samaritan, you have a demon... It's actually kind of ironic, right? I mean, they're accusing him, and that's of course what Satan's name means, is he's the accuser. Uh to say that he's a Samaritan is to say, of course, that he's not a legitimate Israelite. Uh to say that he has a demon is to say he's on, of course, the other team spiritually. Uh so they have started to accuse him. Jesus responds with saying. <laughs> was saying in verse 49, you say, I have a demon, but I honor the father and you dishonor me. Meaning, mm, if somebody's batting for the other team, it's you. And then he talks about, but if you honored me, if you kept my word, you wouldn't see death. And so they go back to Abraham again. Uh, In verses, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, Verse 52, 53, right? They say, look, Abraham died. What are you talking about? No one would see death. Now, of course, by, what Jesus means by death is not merely the physical death. Just like what he means by life is not merely a physical existence. Right? The, the, con, the, the same is true for both life and death, right? That there is life that's just mere physical existence, and then there's the life where the full, rich, spiritual life we're actually really meant to have embodied, yes. But simply bodily existence doesn't mean you have a rich… the rich life you're supposed to have. And so, too, simply dying physically doesn't mean you're dead. Jesus actually picks this up even in another gospel in Matthew 22 when he talks about the resurrection. There's a debate that's going on between some of the Jews, and they try to drag him into it. And uh, and he, he says, yeah, as for the resurrection, have you not read… Uh, what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Implying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in some sense alive or at least awaiting the resurrection, right? That they are dead. He's not denying their physical death, but that their existence is that. So, so they say, you know, look, what are you talking about? These guys died. And Jesus kind of says, well… Abraham, he, that's when he starts to say, well, Abraham saw my day and was glad of it, implying that Abraham is not dead, at least in that full sense. And then they are incredulous in verse 57. I know I'm taking you through this a little quickly, but this will draw out these themes. By the time that he says, Abraham saw me, they, they say, oh, look, you're not even 50, of course, Abraham didn't see you. He lived over 2,000 years ago. Of course, Abraham didn't see you. Now, they know well that that's not what Jesus means. They, they, don't, they, they know he doesn't think that Abraham literally saw him, they, but they take him literalistically in order to sort of poke holes at what he's saying, to score points. Right? They're not trying to actually engage what he's saying. They're trying to, to mock him and to prove their own cleverness. Well, all of this starts to show us what is going on in their hearts, right? the lies of Satan that they are falling into. You know, Calvin says of the human heart that it has so many crannies where vanities hide, so many holes where falsehoods lurk. It is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisies that it often dupes itself. Right? We often fool ourselves just as much as we try to fool others. And you can see some of the things that they're telling themselves. They're telling themselves that their genealogy gives them significance. Who they came from, that makes them significant. You know, as an expression that somebody comes from good people, we're essentially saying the same thing. Now we know it's more—we know it's more insidious forms like racism, where we imply that somebody is less than because of where they've come from, who they've come from. But of course, the flip side of racism is to say that, well, I'm my, me and my people. <laughs> We're better off. You know, I've, uh, several times I, I've known folks who started dating. And, and, I, and I would know some of the things that they had, had dealt with in their lives, right? And somebody would start, be starting to deal with some of the baggage from their family. Start to get honest about it maybe even going through counseling over you know over some of these things. And then they would start dating somebody. And as that person is sort of being honest about what's going on in their family, this other family would say, hmm, start getting a little nervous. Right? Uh-oh, because they come from this messed up family. Now, what I would usually say is, uh, you realize that they're the person that's actually dealing with what's messed up in their family. <laughs> they're the person who's healing. And if your family thinks we don't have any baggage, maybe you maybe you ought to stop and think about what's going on in your family. Point is, we kind of think this way, don't we? That the people we come from, the institutions that we that have helped shape us, the experiences that we've come out of, therefore give us some sort of legitimacy, some sort of standing. Now, in close connection with that is often the kind of achievements that we think we've reached, right? The people aren't simply saying, Abraham was our father. They're saying, we follow in his steps, right? We're kind of maintaining the heritage of Abraham, and that is often how we think of it too, right? We, we may or may not tell ourselves the genealogical nonsense, but we tell ourselves that we have achieved a lot. Look at all that I've done. You know, maybe you were the first person to go to college in your family. Maybe you were the first person to get an advanced degree. Maybe you have really done well in terms of, you know, making your way in the world. Maybe you're really good at some hobby. <laughs> there it was all kinds of things we can tell ourselves. Maybe you take pride in how your family is and how they act, and you tell yourself that you've helped shape that. You know, and the thing about achievements are there, I mean, there is a grain of truth, but they don't mean much. Not nearly what we think about our own success, about our own. Value, and of course, especially when we put that into a moral category and look at what I've done, I've kept all the rules. Especially when we have that mindset, right? We are beginning to fool ourselves that our goodness is enough. Of course, it's not enough, it's never enough whether your achievement is moral in its nature or whether it is your career or whether it is other things, right? There's always somebody who's better than you. (laughs) There's always somebody who's done more. When we start thinking that our own goodness should give us confidence, we're in a dangerous place. When we start thinking... Yeah, maybe, maybe we even start thinking, I've do, I'm doing all these things for the kingdom. Right? That's a pitfall a lot of pastors fall into, right? Is I'm doing all these things for the kingdom. Of course, many a uh, church volunteer has also in, fallen into that kind of assumption, too, right? I'm doing all these things for the kingdom, right? I must be doing pretty well. It's a dangerous place to be. And it's not that growing in the faith can't be a source of of confidence in an anxious moment, right? In a moment of doubt. But when that's the main thing we're hanging our hat on, bad news. And then of course, we also give our we also hang our hat on our own cleverness. Right? Just as they were kind of poking holes in a obviously overly literalistic interpretation of what Jesus was saying, right? We do the same thing. It's a way of kind of dragging everybody down to our level. <laughs> if I can't really seem to make headway, at least I will convince myself, convince other people like me that of course we're smarter. Of course we're clever. Of course we got it all figured out. You know, this is, this is an obvious thing we see going on within our political discourse, for example. Right? Is everybody just talking to their own people? making fun of the others by proving that, of course, we're the smart ones. But, of course, it convinces no one. It engages nothing, really, of substance that the other side is saying. And my point isn't about our politics. My point is we know what this looks like because it's on display in our politics. But we do this with ourselves. And you know who does it maybe the worst is Christians. There's many an apologetic that I've heard for the gospel that didn't speak one iota to the concerns of anybody outside the tribe. That didn't do anything to try to be helpful in bridging the understanding of those outside the faith. And uh, look, I'm not saying I've nailed it either. (laughs) But so often, right, we are telling ourselves, boy, Look at us. We're obviously smarter. Look at how dumb that other side is. It's part of the lies of Satan that we're so clever, that we're so smart. And of course, those lies in the end, right, they promise us so much and they just deliver meager returns. Think about achievement. There's always somebody better than we are. There's always somebody more impressive, more successful, more well-respected. There are, and there's often diminishing returns, right? What felt so significant for so long over time feels less and less. The cleverer I think I am, the more I have to find to lampoon about other people. And again, especially when that's the church trying to lampoon others. It means our confidence is only as stable as we can find enemies to fight. And when finally we start to admit to ourselves that we're not living up to all that we think we're supposed to be, I mean, where does that leave us? Crushed with guilt? Ashamed? Afraid? or maybe we settle for hypocrisy, right? Knowing that we're not living up, but what we will do is put on a good face, try to convince ourselves that we're, we've arrived. You know, Eugene Peterson in his book, Tell It Slant, puts, talks about hypocrisy this way. He says, hypocrisy is a unique sin in that it does not begin in a temptation to do wrong. It usually begins with a genuine attraction to God and righteousness and prayer. We would like to be known as a person of prayer with a reputation for righteousness, but when we find out that there's more to it than panting like a thirsty deer for fresh water, desire dissipates in distraction. Hypocrisy is the lazy replacement of a strenuous interior life with God with religious makeup and gossipy God chatter. He goes on and says, You know, this is why no one is conscious of becoming a hypocrite. Because we think we're pursuing the right thing. But what we've really settled for is to do all the externals and try to make it look good. But inside, there's nothing alive. These are the lies of Satan. (laughs) That we come from good people. (laughs) That we've achieved a lot. That we're clever. But that's not what the hope of Abraham is. This this is what Jesus says in, in verse 56 that Abraham saw his day and was glad. Abraham saw it and was glad. Abraham's focus was ahead to what Jesus was going to do. Now, I don't think he means that Abraham could have sitting down and written one of the Gospels, you know, one of the Gospel accounts, but that he understood something that God was going to have to do, something significant. And notice this, it's not just Abraham. This is actually a theme in the Gospel of John, He doesn't use the verb see, but back in chapter 5, in another debate about Jesus' authority, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? So Moses was also looking forward to Jesus. Later on, John himself as narrator uh, will quote Isaiah in chapter, in chapter 12 of John, he'll quote Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Saw his glory. In other words, this is a theme, right, of all of these who are anticipating Jesus' coming, Jesus' arrival, and of course, as we said, the people respond cynically, and then Jesus takes the gloves off in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a nonsense phrase grammatically. <laughs> before Abraham was, I am means nothing unless you get the connotation of I am. Maybe some of you have already connected the dots, but that is the name of God. See, all the Gospels tell us of Jesus doing and saying the sorts of things that only God could do or say. All the Gospels are filled with it. He's constantly doing the sorts of things that nobody can do except for God. So it's not that Jesus' divinity is necessarily in doubt, but here Jesus gives the most blunt assessment he possibly could of his own divinity. He takes the name of God on himself. This is the name from back in Exodus, right, when God is beginning the great Old Testament work of redemption. In Exodus 3, when he shows up to Moses in the burning bush, he declares his name, I am who I am, right? Because he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell the people my name. Tell them I am has sent you. I am. That becomes the name Yahweh for God. No wonder the people pick up stones, right? They're getting ready to stone him. They're not throwing pebbles like as some sort of protest about what he's doing. No, they mean to kill him. They are getting ready to stone him for blasphemy. That's why they go off the rails. That's why the conversation ends. (laughs) And Jesus, you know, somehow, it's not clear, slips away, right, from from this stoning. Because they know that he's claiming to be God. And And therefore, he's saying, look, the thing that Abraham was waiting for, for God to show up and fulfill the covenant, I am doing. You remember this back from the life of Abraham, maybe. In chapter 15 of Genesis, when God you know, formally cuts the covenant with Abraham, formally establishes the covenant, he sets up this whole symbolic situation with these animals cut in half, right? And the symbolism mean it being that if the covenant is broken, let me be cut in half like these things. Let my life be forfeit just as these animals were. And, Abraham, and God puts Abraham to sleep and in smoke and fire passes through the animals himself, taking the responsibility for the covenant on himself. What Abraham knows is that God is the one who's going to have to do it. God's the one who's going to have to fulfill the covenant, not him. And that is one of the insidious things of the lies of Satan here, right? Is that Abraham's own children, that he was promised, have started to buy into the lie that they can somehow keep the covenant, maintain the covenant, fulfill the covenant. And what Abraham knew was that God would have to do something. God himself would have to fulfill it. And God proves reliable, of course, to Abraham, But God proves reliable, and again, you might recall some of these stories from our series on Abraham. God proves reliable often by correcting what Abraham has messed up. When Abraham tries to take the reins, when Abraham tries to make matters work as he thinks they ought to work out, he's screwing things up left and right, and God shows up to keep him on track. And that's the same way we do it, right? We try to set up tests for God and his faithfulness all the time. Right? We're praying for things that he has not promised. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ask for it, but if your test of whether God is reliable or not is if he gives you what you want the way you want it, I, guarantee, I can tell you what the answer to your prayer request is going to be now. No. Because he doesn't promise that. If, if what we think is that God needs to essentially baptize our way of seeing, baptize those lies of Satan, that we are significant because of where we come from and we're significant because of what we've achieved and we're significant because we're smarter than, and clever and more common sense than everybody else, God's answer to you is no. That is no test for God's faithfulness. The test of God's faithfulness is whether he sees the covenant through. The test for God's faithfulness is whether the Son has accomplished everything that God promised. And that is what he's done. That's why Abraham said, or, or Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad of it because he is fulfilling everything that God has promised. The proof that you can have faith in him, that you can trust him. I mean, just as we were saying to the kids, right? The, the, the trustworthiness of God does not rest in merely his naked power or merely in his omniscience, that he knows everything, that he knows everything. That God's trustworthiness is rooted in his covenant love for us. His covenant love, which finds its fulfillment in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. As we talk about baby Jesus during Advent and Christmas, we are not meant to think about warm and fuzzy feelings about cute babies. I'm sure he was cute. Every baby's cute we're supposed to say that. They are. But that's not really the focus, right? The focus is on Jesus' vulnerability. Of everything and it's it's of what everything that he gave up to enter in. That's the point. The reason that we that Matthew and Luke go back to that story is not to be like, hey, this Jesus guy was really cute. so you should listen to him. They don't talk about his cuteness. (laughs) They don't mention it. It's funny, isn't it? They don't mention any of that stuff. They're talking about his vulnerability. They're talking about everything that he has given up in order to redeem us. And that is why God is faithful. That is the hope of Abraham. And what brings it all into focus, then, is understanding the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ, then, you might say, really is the thing that sharpens the focus of our faith. He talks about it a lot in this passage. He, when we get to the Gospel of John in January, we'll find out that the idea of God's glory is a, is a major theme throughout the book, and I'm going to give you a spoiler now he says in verse 50 that he doesn't seek his own glory, but that there is one who seeks it. It's the Father. He says in 54 and 55, right, if I, see, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but it is the Father who glorifies me. And all throughout this gospel, Jesus constantly is talking about himself giving glory to the Father and the Father giving glory to him and back and forth, and back and forth. And that theme of glory, I mean, it is part of the opening of the book, where John tells us that we have, uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, meaning we've seen God's glory, and it's revealed in the way that this story plays out in the way that the story of the Son of God in the flesh plays out. If you want to understand God's glory, you've got to follow this story. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. And he goes on, though. Later, in this, later, as Jesus gets to his long final discourse with his disciples that spans from chapter 13 to 17... Uh, he begins early on in chapter 13 saying, now the son of man is glorified, meaning as I fulfill what I came to do, I'm being glorified. God is glorified in him. And when he offers up his final prayer in chapter 17, he says, glorify, he's praying to the father. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He's talking about his death. And this is the strangest thing about the whole idea of glory in the Bible is that when we think of glory in most cultures, when they have some kind of idea of glory, and most do, associated, of course, with beauty and power. It's often associated with kings, right, and and their majesty and all the sort of pomp and circumstance around them. Of course, the power that they wield. But the Old Testament starts to connect the idea of God's glory with the greatness and goodness of His character. One of the things that's unique about the Bible is it associates glory with character. And it is when Jesus comes down, when the Son comes down and is incarnate, that the door cracks open on God's character in a way that no one anticipated. That though Abraham knew that God would have to act, I doubt he knew that he would ta- that God would take on flesh that Abraham, for all that he saw, probably could not have guessed how low God was willing to stoop in order to save us that for all the great faith that Abraham had, for all that he saw, and you know Hebrews reminds us right that he was waiting for a thing that wasn't going to arrive in his lifetime. He was looking for a better country. Though he was waiting for all of those things, though he was told that God himself was his very great reward, he would never have guessed that this would be how it would go. That God's glory could only be understood by tracing the life of Jesus. You see, this is the thing about faith. It cannot settle a biblical faith, cannot settle for generalities about who God is. Those generalities may be true, but that is not nearly enough because the glory of God is revealed in in and through and what Jesus does. It is God's character that is shown through the life of Jesus so that the story of Him taking on flesh... As uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her little book, The Song of the Stars, in heaven's sun sleeping under the stars that he made. Right, it is, that is where we start to understand the true glory of God, the greatness of his character, of how far he's willing to go to love us. And then his life is defined by trials and temptations all the time. And yet, and yet, and yet, without failing. And then, of course, his suffering and his death. I mean, at that point, the idea of glory by anybody else's standard is stretched nearly beyond comprehension. No one else in the world before, and and I say hardly anybody since, that has not paying attention to this story would never think of the idea of glory being associated with the cross. This is why Paul calls it a scandal. Because nobody thought the glory of God would have anything to do with the horror and the shame of the cross. Except, of course, for God. It isn't understanding that the cross shows us finally the depths of God's sacrificial love. And we understand what His character really is. And we start to understand the true glory of God. And of course, in tracing that Jesus was raised up, we start to understand the full effect of what He has done, that He gave Himself over to sin and to death in order to destroy it from the inside out. You know, the early church fathers, a number of them loved this, the idea of a fish hook, right? and that Jesus was the bait for the great fish, right? That thinking he was coming in for a tasty meal (laughs) swallowed its own undoing. That's the point, right? The glory of God is revealed not, not, not in his power, not ultimately. The glory of God is not revealed ultimately in all that he knows. The glory of God is revealed in all that he gives to redeem us. That's what the glory of God is. And even now, as he ascends and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, the glory of God is still in working out salvation in our lives. I mean, if we had all authority in heaven and on earth, what would we do with it? It probably wouldn't be to build the church in all its messiness. But that's what he does. Because we need to learn the glory of God through the cross. See, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not just saying, follow me, and sometimes it's going to get hard, which I think is mostly what we think. He is saying, follow me, Because the cross, and it will look like a cross, because that is the way of learning my character. The cross, the incarnation, tracing that story is how we understand the true glory of God. It is what brings our faith into focus. Our faith is often distracted, and certainly, you know, in the Christmas season. We're distracted by a lot of things. Very full schedules, all the shopping, all the other things we're trying to do, all the sweets, and all the heartburn that comes with it, and all the other things that come with it. We're distracted by so many things. But it is the incarnation and the cross that show us God's character most clearly. That's what focuses our faith. So this Advent... May our faith be focused, not around, not around the beauty, the outward beauty of the season, but focused on the beauty of God's character being revealed in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would show us the riches of your glory And you would remind us through this season of the extent of your love, of the length that you were willing to go to send your son, of the length that he went, how low he stooped, how much he suffered in order to fulfill your love for us. Give us faith that's fed and strengthened, not by lies, but by the glory of Christ, seen through the manger and the cross. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.